Hello everyone and welcome to the August 13 edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel approved an award where factors of disability were added together instead of combined using the combined values chart in the AMA guides. Here's what happened in the case of Tanya versus the County of Santa Clara. Naomi Tanya suffered a significant injury to her neck and shoulders in 2011, and as a compensable consequence of this injury, she developed psychiatric disability. The neck and shoulder injuries were assessed by an AME who rated those at 48%, and the psychiatric consequences were evaluated by another AME who rated those at 39%. The psychiatric AME reported that applicants' physical and psychiatric impairments do not overlap and that her physical and psychiatric impairments appear additive in their effect on permanent disability. The sole disagreement between the parties was whether the overall level of permanent disability was best represented by combining the two values using the combined values chart, which would produce 68% PD, or adding the two, which would produce 87% PD. The work comp judge found that adding the two disabilities was appropriate and awarded 87% permanent disability. The defendant's petition for reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Taina versus the County of Santa Clara. The panel cited the 2009 Almarez and Guzman decisions, which held that a physician may, with proper explanation, deviate from the percentages contained in the applicable chapters of the AMA guides in order to better express the injured worker's level of impairment. Similarly, in finding permanent disability, the WCAB applies its expertise to determine an accurate rating based upon the entirety of the record. In determining overall permanent disability, it has been recognized that the rating schedules provide only a guide and that the final rating should reflect the entire picture of disability and possibility of employability. Thus, the disability values of multiple impairments may be added instead of combined using the combined values chart if that provides an accurate rating particularly when there is no overlap and when the synergistic effect of the multiple disabilities support that method of combination. And the AMA guides itself states that a scientific formula has not been established to indicate the best way to combine multiple impairments. Given the diversity of impairments and great variability in combining multiple impairments, it is difficult to establish a formula that accounts for all situations. There are sometimes confusing rules about when a homeowner is liable for injuries to workers on the property, either in tort or under workers' compensation. The common questions include whether the person hired by the homeowner was required to be a licensed professional to do the work, and if so, whether the person had the required license. The Court of Appeal in the published case of Jones v. Sorensen was required to sort through these questions. 
In this case, homeowner Danita Sorensen hired Odette Miranda DBA Designs by Leo to trim and cut trees on her property. And Miranda then hired Jones to help her. Miranda had done landscaping work for Sorensen for 13 or 14 years, including weeding, trimming, maintaining a front yard pond, and so forth. Miranda did not routinely use a ladder, and Miranda was not licensed or insured. Jones worked as a helper for Miranda about twice a year, and Miranda was the one who paid Jones. Jones had worked at Sorensen's property four times, and once she had trimmed trees from the ground. This time, Jones used a small ladder and a larger pole ladder to prune lilacs and remove plums from a tree, while trimming and cutting a tree over 15 feet tall, and while using a ladder provided by Miranda, Jones fell and was hurt. Jones's claim for workers' compensation benefits was denied by Sorensen's homeowner's insurance carrier, because Jones had not satisfied statutory minimum work requirements under the labor code. Miranda was allegedly negligent in various ways, such as failure to train, supervise, and provide proper equipment. But, because Miranda was an unlicensed contractor, Sorensen was deemed by law to be Miranda's employer. Therefore, Sorensen was liable for Miranda's negligence on a respondeat superior theory, meaning Miranda's negligence was imputable to her. But a person acting as a nursery person may trim trees 15 feet tall or higher without a contractor's license, although a gardener cannot. And the trial court ruled the terms gardener and nursery person, as used in Business and Professions Code Section 7026.1, were synonymous, and therefore, Sorensen could avoid tort liability. So summary judgment was granted dismissing the case, and Jones appealed, and the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case. The relevant statute distinguishes between a gardener and a nursery person. A nursery person refers to a licensed operator of a nursery, whereas a gardener does not require a license. There is no evidence that the gardener Sorensen hired was also a nursery person. This means that Sorensen has not refuted the claim that she was the gardener's and therefore Jones's employer and potentially liable under a respondeat superior theory for the gardener's alleged negligence. The U.S. Justice Department has joined several whistleblower lawsuits against Invidior and Reckitt Bankster Group, alleging that the drug makers improperly marketed the opioid addiction treatment Suboxone. Last month, Invidior said it was in advanced discussions with the Department of Justice to resolve an investigation dating back to 2013 related to its marketing practices. Invidior said it has set aside $438 million to cover legal matters, most of which relates to the investigation, and Reckitt has separately reserved $390 million. The lawsuits were filed under the False Claims Act, which allows whistleblowers to sue companies on the government's behalf. 
The government may intervene in these cases, which is typically a major boost. Among the complaints unsealed on August 2nd was one filed by former Reckitt employee Anne Marie Williams. Her 2013 lawsuit alleged the companies marketed unapproved dosages and uses of Suboxone and Subutex and claimed Reckitt made misleading claims to the FDA to obtain approval for a dissolvable film version of Suboxone. She alleges that the film version was inferior to the tablet as it could be more easily diverted for improper purposes and posed an increased risk to children who could accidentally put it in their mouths. But the companies marketed the Suboxone film as safer for patients and children than the tablets. And now our crime report. Illicit use of pharmaceutical fentanyl and its analogs first appeared in the mid-1970s in the medical community and continues to the present. More than 12 different analogs of fentanyl, all unapproved and clandestinely produced, have been identified in the U.S. drug traffic. The biological effects of the fentanyl analogs are similar to those of heroin, with the exception that many users reported noticeably less euphoric high associated with the drug and stronger sedative and analgesic effects. And fentanyl analogs may be hundreds of times more potent than heroin. Non-medical use of fentanyl by individuals without opiate tolerance can be very dangerous and has resulted in numerous deaths. Even those with opioid tolerances are at high risk for overdoses. And fentanyl is regularly being smuggled into California. This month, 20-year-old Flavio Diego Rivera de Valos was sentenced to 87 months in custody based on his guilty plea, admitting that he smuggled about 77 pounds of fentanyl into the United States. Davalos, who was 19 at the time of the offense, was arrested at the San Ysidro Port of Entry last December. The 77 pounds of fentanyl would yield 800,000 potentially fatal dosage units and a market value of more than $2 million. And also this August, Fernando Jesus Peraza, a U.S. citizen living in Tijuana, was arraigned in federal court on charges of importing over 20,000 fentanyl pills and what is believed to be the largest seizure of fentanyl in pill form along the U.S.-Mexico border. Peraza, who works in San Diego County, was also arrested at the San Ysidro Port of Entry. U.S. Custom Border Protection officers initially contacted Peraza in primary inspection area where he was the driver, registered owner, and sole occupant of his vehicle. He then was referred to secondary inspection where officers found four packages concealed in the passenger side rear quarter panel. The pills tested positive for fentanyl but were designed to resemble oxycodone. And earlier this month, 19-year-old Christian Arahu Aguirre of Tijuana was charged with importing 11,490 fentanyl pills, 61 pounds of methamphetamine, and 14 pounds of heroin.
A Burbank man who operated a string of allegedly sham medical clinics and who already faces federal charges of using the clinics to orchestrate a massive narcotic scheme was arrested this week on new charges that he unlawfully procured United States citizenship. 44-year-old Armen Simoyan, who was free on bond in their narcotics trafficking case, was arrested after being named in a two-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury. The new indictment charges Simoyan with unlawful procurement of United States citizenship and making a false statement on a passport application. Samanyan was previously indicted in 2017 on charges that he and other co-conspirators disseminated more than 2 million pills of controlled prescription drugs to the black market, mostly oxycodone and hydrocodone. The 2017 indictments charged 14 defendants who allegedly participated in an elaborate scheme they mistakenly hoped would conceal a high-volume drug trafficking operation. The alleged leader was Minas Matassian, an Encido man also known as Maserati Mike, who is charged with leading the scheme and controlling six of the sham clinics. Matassian allegedly supplied corrupt doctors in exchange for kickbacks derived from proceeds generated when the other sham clinics created fraudulent prescriptions or submitted fraudulent bills to health care programs. Simanian is currently scheduled to go to trial in that case this February. The new indictment outlines Simanian's 15-year history of securing United States immigration benefits by way of fraud and identity theft. Simanian allegedly entered the United States from Armenia under a stolen identity and a fraudulent passport. He then sought asylum in the United States, allegedly concocting a false narrative that he was born in Asbidjan to parents of supposed mixed Armenian Asbidjan nationality, that his family suffered ethnic violence, including the murder of both his parents, and that he fled to the United States by way of Russia. The new indictment alleges that, in fact, Simonian was born in Armenia to Armenian parents, and that he entered the United States from Armenia and that both of his parents were alive. Somanyan will lose his United States citizenship if convicted of the immigration fraud charge. The indictment also charges Somanyan with lying on his application for a United States passport after he gained citizenship. The alleged false statements related to his place of birth, his date of birth, and his claim that his mother was deceased. Prime Healthcare Services and its related entities and Prime's founder and CEO, Dr. Prem Reddy, have agreed to pay the United States $65 million to settle allegations that 14 prime hospitals in California submitted false claims to Medicare. The settlement resolves claims that it admitted patients who only required less costly outpatient care and billed for more expensive treatment diagnoses than the patients had. This practice is known as upcoding. These patients originally visited the emergency departments at the 14 prime hospitals in California. Under the settlement agreement, Reddy will pay $3.25 million and Prime will pay 
and three quarters million. Prime Healthcare Services and the not-for-profit Prime Healthcare Foundation constitute one of the largest hospital systems in the nation, with 45 acute care hospitals located in 14 states. The company is headquartered in Ontario, California. The government claimed that the inpatient admissions of these beneficiaries was not medically necessary because their symptoms and treatment needs should have been managed in a less costly outpatient or observation setting. Hospitals generally receive significantly higher payments for inpatient admissions as opposed to outpatient treatment. Prime engaged in upcoding by falsifying information concerning patient diagnoses, including complications and comorbidities, in order to increase Medicare reimbursement. This settlement resolves a False Claims Act, or FCA, lawsuit filed in federal court in Los Angeles by Karen Bernstein, the former director of performance improvement at the Alvarado Hospital Medical Center in San Diego. Under the key tom or whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act, private citizens are permitted to bring lawsuits on behalf of the United States and obtain a portion of the government's recovery. Ms. Bernstein will receive $17,225,000 as her portion of the settlement amount. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB proposes advisory pure premium rates for next January, which are 4.5% less than the average approved July 1 advisory pure premium rate and 20% less than the industry average filed pure premium rate as of July 1. If adopted, this would be the eighth consecutive pure premium rate decrease since 2015, totaling about 40% in all. The January 1, 2019 average advisory pure premium reflects continued downward loss development, acceleration in claim settlements, sharply declining pharmaceutical costs, and a decline in the number of liens being filed. Despite these continued favorable trends, allocated loss adjustment expenses continue to increase and that the medical savings deriving, driving these advisory pure premium rate decreases could erode if medical inflation rates were to return to historical norms. The California Department of Insurance will schedule a public hearing to consider approval of this advisory rating. 29-year-old Catherine Williams Dodd of Napa has just been appointed by Governor Brown to the California Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. Dodd has served as Brown's Deputy Legal Affairs Secretary since 2017. Before that, she was Assistant General Manager and Corporate Secretary at Frog's Leap Winery from 2016 to 2017. Dodd was a legislative advocate at the American Civil Liberties Union of California Center for Advocacy and Policy from 2013 to 2016, where she was a legislative assistant. She has been admitted to the California State Bar as an attorney since May 27, 2015, and has been an attorney for slightly more than three years. She has no apparent experience in the practice of workers' compensation law or claims administration.
And this is the second WCAB appointment by Governor Brown this year of a candidate with virtually no experience in the workers' compensation field. Earlier this month, Brown appointed 80-year-old Juan Pedro Gaffney of Sebastopol to the WCAB. Gaffney has been a member of the California Alcoholic Beverage Control Appeals Board since 2017 and directo at Coro Hispano de San Francisco since 1975. He was director of Hispanic Liturgy at the Mission Dolores from 1993 to 2008 and was the first artist-in-residence at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Gaffney was an associate professor of philosophy at St. Joseph's College and a lecturer at St. Mary's College from 1972 to 1996. He also does not have any background in workers' compensation claims and is not an attorney. These positions require Senate confirmation, and the compensation is $153,689 a year. Dodd is a Democrat and is Senator Bill Dodd's daughter-in-law. Gaffney is reportedly Governor Brown's high school classmate. Remoxy ER Extended Release Capsules is a long-acting formulation of oxycodone designed to discourage most methods of tampering linked to opioid abuse. However, a joint meeting of the Anesthetic and Analgesic Drug Products Advisory Committee and Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee to the Food and Drug Administration voted 14-3 to 3 against approving the new drug. And the FDA agreed and argued that the benefits of this new drug did not outweigh its risks. And Pain Therapeutics, the proposed manufacturer, reacted badly, saying this was a bizarre conclusion to reach, especially during a time of staggering human and economic toll created by opioid abuse and addiction. The company says... It is an innovative drug with a social purpose and a staggering amount of data that easily supports best-in-class abuse deterrence versus OxyContin. This is the company's fourth rejection of the drug Remoxy. Seemingly in response to the fourth rejection, Pain Therapeutics plans to shift its focus from tamper-resistant opioid formulations to Alzheimer's disease remedies. The FDA has perhaps changed direction on approval of opioid pain management strategies. They have announced the desire to find improved treatment alternatives. While these innovative abuse deterrent formulations are designed to make it harder for people to manipulate the opioid drug so they cannot be abused, the FDA says it's important that prescribers and patients understand that these drugs are not abuse-proof and they do not prevent addiction, overdose, or death. The FDA ongoing work is ensuring that drug approval decisions are made within a benefit-risk framework that evaluates the public health effects of inappropriate use of these drugs. 
Both the announced policy and the FDA current opioid rejection history seems to indicate a trend away from opioid drugs toward alternatives, whatever that might be. And in other industry news, United Health Group is poised to grow its presence in the health sector if it closes a yet-to-be-confirmed deal for pharmacy operator Genoa Health. This convergence of retail pharmacy and health insurance has become an emerging trend in the marketplace. Genoa operates 400 pharmacies across the country, all of which deal with patients with behavioral or other complex chronic health issues. Industry experts say that if Genoa sold, it could fetch a price of more than $2 billion. The prospect of United Health Group Genoa deal follows an agreement reached late last year involving CVS buying Aetna for $69 billion. Meanwhile, Amazon recently acquired prescription delivery startup PillPack Incorporated. None of the parties involved in the potential deal, however, have yet commented on what might occur. And with that story that is all of our news and events for this week, please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And remember, we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.